Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Religion uh, in New Books Network. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Um, I'm very excited to share uh, this interview uh, with you. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Indigeneity in African Religions, Oza Worldviews, Cosmologies, and Religious Cultures, written by Afe Adogame and published by Bloomsbury Publishing in 2021, explores the historical origins, worldviews, cosmologies, ritual symbolisms, and praxis of the indigenous Osa people in southwest Nigeria. In this monograph, Afia demonstrates a framework of understanding Osa indigenous religious, sociocultural, and political imaginaries through decolonizing burdens of history, memory, and method. Working with religious ethnography, in-depth interviews, and archival data, the future of Oza indigeneity in the face of modernity is illuminated against the backlash of encounters, contestations with multiple hegemonies, transmissions of Christianity and Islam, and indigenous reappropriations. Over the course of our conversation, we will take a closer look at this important work, how the author's locationality and positionality plugs the book within decolonizing knowledges and indigeneity discourses, thus unpacking the complexity of indigeneity and contributing to its conceptual understanding within social religious change in contemporary Africa. And how scholars and students of African studies, religious studies, and even world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Afi Arogame, the author of Indigeneity in African Religions, Oza Worldviews, Cosmologies, and Religious Cultures. Afi Arogame is the Maxwell M. Upson Professor of Religion and Society at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he is one of the leading scholars of the African diaspora. Before going to Princeton, he has also served as an Associate Professor of World Christianity and Religious Studies and Director International at School of Divinity, New College at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, as well as a Senior Research Fellow and Lecturer at the Department of Religions and African Studies Center at the University of Beirut, Germany. He is also Professor Extraordinaire at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. Office teaching and research interests are broad, but tend to focus on interrogating new dynamics of 
religious experiences and expressions in Africa and the African diaspora, with a particular focus on African Christianities and new indigenous religious movements. The interconnectedness between religion and migration, globalizations, politics, economy, media, and the civil society. He has also given lectures at a number of prestigious academic institutions, such as the University of Chicago Divinity School, Drew University, Harvard Divinity School, Tel Aviv University, and many more. Afi has authored and edited a, multiple, a multitude of articles, chapters, and books, and to highlight just a few of his publications here today, he has written two monographs, The African Christian Diaspora, New Currents and Emerging Trends in World Christianity, published in 2013 by Bloomsbury Academic, and The Celestial Church of Christ, The Politics of Cultural Identity in a West African Prophetic Charismatic Movement, published in 1999 by Peter Lang. He has also co-edited multiple monographs, such as Fighting in God's Name, Religion and Conflict in Local Global Perspectives, published by Lexington Books in 2020, Migration and Public Discourse in World Christianity, published by Fortress Press in 2019, The Public Face of African New Religious Movements in Diaspora, Imagining the Religious Other, published by Rutledge in 2014, and Religion on the Move, New Dynamics of Religious Expansion in Globalizing World, published by Brill in 2013. So um, welcome, Dr. Aragame, to New Books in Religion. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Yeah, thanks, Byung-ho, for having me. And uh, congratulations on this uh, podcast uh, initiative. Thank you so much, sir. Um, first of all, I would like to convey my sincere congratulations in publishing this outstanding and pivotal work. Um, this book is literally hot off the press as the online version of your book was published recently in November 2021, and then the hardback uh, came out the month after. And if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Adogami, I also believe that this is your third monograph. Is that correct? Yeah, thanks, Beyong, for your kind uh, words of uh, congratulations. You are correct. Uh, this is my third monograph alongside uh, 16 edited uh, uh, and also co-edited books, although still uh, counting, hopefully. <laughs> yes. And once again, uh, Dr. Adagome, congratulations. Um, I think it'll be a great start to our conversation today by uh, getting to know you a little more. Um, I know I've introduced you in the beginning, but I was wondering if you could share with us about your background, like where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study. And do please feel free to mention any influential interlocutors you might have had along the way. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, just in brief, uh, I was born in Oza, uh, in the midwest, midwest of Nigeria, which is now located on the Akoko Edo local government area of Edo State. Uh, my, as far as my academic hiatus is concerned, uh, I earned my uh, BA and MA in, in Nigeria uh, at uh, what used to be called the Bender State University uh, for my bachelor's and uh, Obafemi Awolowo University uh, for my master's program. And then I proceeded to Germany uh, in 1995 uh, where I pursued my uh, PhD 
which I completed in 1997. So my academic sojourn, first in Nigeria uh, till 1994, and then afterwards in Europe and the United States in the last uh, two and a half decades, uh, in, a, in a way in which uh, I had spent 10 years in Germany, 10 years in the UK, and now over uh, six years since I joined uh, uh, PTS. Uh, this time frame has immensely shaped my academic life considerably. At least uh, three key individuals who have mentored and shaped my academic life are worthy of mention here. Uh, the first, uh, Professor Jacob Olupona uh, uh, at Harvard University, uh, Emeritus Professor Ulrich Banner at the University of Bayreuth uh, in Germany, uh, was actually my PhD advisor. And uh, thirdly, uh, Professor Obukalu uh, of Blessed Memory of McCormick Theological Seminary, Chicago, uh, are three uh, of my mentors who, who stand out. Of course, there are other people, uh, other scholars who have shaped my life. Uh, uh, but in a sense, uh, for these three uh, individuals, I'm still struggling and attempting to step, in, to step into their oversized shoes, so to speak. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Adekwami, for sharing with us your academic background and uh, some of these key figures in your academic journey. Um, Dr. Adekwami, I have had the privilege of witnessing just a snippet of the journey it has taken you in um, writing this book, especially as you write in your uh, preface that the first seeds of this book were planted nearly two decades ago. And I know not too long ago I was um, involved with just uh, taking a brief look at your book too, but here I would like to invite you to tell us a little more about how you came to write this important monograph, Indigeneity in African Religions, Ozo Worldviews, Cosmologies, and Religious Cultures. I'm curious, where did this journey begin and how did this idea develop? You are very kind, Bianco. <laughs> First, let, let me thank you again for your immense uh, contribution through the journey uh, by way of uh, editorial assistance and, and support. So my appreciation goes uh, as well as to your other colleagues, uh, Ruth Amwe and Amidu Elabo uh, for your uh, editorial input. Uh, without your support, let me just be very clear. Perhaps the journey would have been a little bit uh, longer, I think. Uh, the original research idea uh, was bettered in 1995, to be precise, at the early stages of my PhD studies at the University of, uh, of Bayreuth. Uh, here, I was involved in an interdisciplinary uh, research project on, on cultural identity in Africa. So I, I was working as a research assistant under this project, uh, what eventually formed my uh, PhD uh, thesis. Uh, and, and so this opened my uh, scholarly eyes to the fact that uh, charity should begin at home. Although that project was not focusing on my immediate home context, but was focusing on, on Nigeria, but I thought perhaps uh, this is an opportunity to pay back to the community where I was raised 
and groomed. So I, I reason that it's not sufficient um, to bemoan the absence of literature on the social history of Oza people and uh, uh, ended up uh, or end up not doing anything about it. So I thought if no one is doing this at the moment, why not give it a shot? Why not me? So I kept that interest on the table and eventually revisited it when I completed my PhD uh, studies at the end of 1997. So in the years that followed, I started to gather preliminary data each time I had the opportunity to visit Nigeria. And uh, the, the rest is now history. Um, wow, it's um, you even delineate in your book, uh, Dr. Adagame, how you also include this. Uh, after years of research there, you re include religious ethnography, you know, archival data and oral history. And I'm just curious, you know, what your writing experience was like overall uh, in this process of writing this book. Any quick comments in regards to that? Yeah, again, I mean, these are long histories and stories, but I will try to be very brief. Uh, so uh, thanks again for asking. Uh, I must say that I was, uh, uh, apart from mentioning uh, who my key mentors have been, uh, I, I was groomed early, early on at the Obafemi Awolowo University in Nigeria, where I studied under Professor Olupona for my uh, master's degree uh, in, in, in late uh, uh, 1980s. He was actually the first professor to introduce me to the dynamics of research methods and research methodology, including offering his courses such as sociology of religion, phenomenology of religion, and the anthropology of religion. So these initial exposures serves as the spark that ignited my zeal and passion for religious uh, ethnography but at the same time opened my scholarly eyes towards uh, interdisciplinary approach or approaches uh, and interpretation of uh, religious uh, phenomena. So by the time I arrived in Germany in 1995, I was already somewhat brewed and mentally ready for further graduate studies. The Department of Religions uh, and the African Studies Center at the University of, of Bayreuth, uh, which uh, appears, which was known as the best African studies center in, in Germany, became home uh, in the next decade of my uh, academic uh, life. I, I must say that the intellectual rigor and the attention to inter interdisciplinarity and research methods through research methodology colloquiums and through the collaborative research proje uh, projects was uh, profound. Uh, let me just give you an example. For instance, for a couple of years, I was very much in, in, uh, involved in the uh, special research uh, 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 group or what is called the, the German Research Foundation sponsored project, which focuses uh, on Africa. Each of these projects bring together 14 to 16 disciplines and fields from the humanities to the social sciences to pure sciences to engage in intellectual conversation and exchange. You can imagine how messy and complicated such an encounter can be 
for you a scholar of religion sitting with someone in plant uh, plant uh, uh, biology you know what kind of conversation you are likely to have I, I must say that it was also a space for creativity and innovation forcing you out of your comfort zone to uh, appreciate how we can actually view a masquerade from different spots based on our socio-cultural and uh, epistemic location. So I, I think this was where, uh, you know, my ideas, my research ideas uh, became uh, uh, crystallized, so to speak. Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Adelume. And just a quick follow-up question, as I've had the opportunity to see the hard copy of your book, um, I was wondering if you'd like to just briefly speak on the picture of the brown clay pot on the cover of your book. Um, for our listeners and future readers, um, not only the cover, but there's uh, wonderful and colored pictures of, of um, inside the book and maps that will really help guide um, the readers. But uh, Dr. Adogame, is there a reason why you chose this picture, the picture of brown clay pots um, on the cover? And would you like to say something about this as we enter into the first pages of your book? Oh, yes. Uh, thanks for uh, this uh, very important question. Uh, I must say that the choice of this cover page uh, image is intentional uh, as a way to recognize but also uh, illuminate uh, feminine ingenuity through the sacrality uh, and aesthetics of Erema uh, uh, pottery making. Erema is the clay, is, is the pottery made out of, of clay. So uh, essentially, Oza women are renowned for traditional crafts like uh, clay po uh, pottery, uh, which is produced for multiple reasons. Uh, it's produced for domestic, commercial, aesthetic, but also ritual purposes. And it's important to understand the many functions uh, of this kind of a product. So besides, I, I attempted in this book to demonstrate the prominence of the female gender within uh, kinship genealogy as analogous to the special ritual role and place of women within uh, the religious map of the cosmos. So uh, the focus on, on women, uh, which is also partly exemplified by the cover page and, and uh, what I refer to as the uh, feminine ingenuity, is in my view, very crucial in reconstructing the historical, cultural, and religious imagination. Besides, decolonial studies or decolonial theory needs to pay more attention to gender dynamics. The role and place of women in society in a way that allows them to speak for themselves. So, uh, talk about gender in this case is hardly synonymous with women, but rather paying attention to power dynamics, interpersonal relationship, but also the intersectionality of, of genders. So th this is why, as you can see, uh, when reading the book, that I devoted at least two chapters addressing these uh, concerns. And I think the colonial studies or the colonial knowledges needs to take pay 
primal attention to the centrality of, of women uh, in, in, in trying to, to make sense of uh, any local historical, cultural, and, and, and religious uh, uh, imagination. Well, thank you, Dr. Adegame. I think um, your comment um, that you just made really puts the, in a way, the groundwork for what we're going into in regards to the contents of your book and what you're trying to emphasize as well. And as we take a deeper dive into your book um, to inform our listeners and future readers, it is comprised of eight chapters, with each chapter serving as a vital contribution in reconstructing the Oza historical, cultural, and religious imagination, um, while also highlighting the importance of indigenous religious tradition of Africa. And if I may make a brief comment here, Dr. Aragame, that in reading the first few pages of your book, you make a very strong case that there is no one better fit to have undertaken this project of writing about the Oza people. The very core questions you seek to ask and address in this very book is an embodiment of your own life's journey, I believe, as, as the question that you have asked yourself throughout your life in your academic journey, in your encounters with multiple cultures, as you mentioned um, in your introduction, and the experiences that has shaped you all go parallel to the very story you're trying to tell in your book. So in the first chapter, you lay some of the early groundwork to your book, ask some very important questions and help us familiarize ourselves with some of the frameworks, approaches and methodologies you are employing, um, how you are applying, quote, uh, social, cultural and epistemic uh, reflexivity in exploring Oza indigeneity and in locating their complex religious social, cultural, and political history within decolonizing discourse, end quote. So this book, as you deemed as a, as you mentioned, decolonizing knowledge project, pushes back against some of the existing literature, mostly outdated and of colonial, but by uplifting the voices of the Oza people and telling their stories, their histories and narratives through their own Cosmologi uh, cosmological imaginaries and how this is shaped by people they encounter and who live around them. And it is in this very first chapter you mentioned how you are exploring and working with this complex concept of indigeneity as your guiding premise to this book. Um, as you have extensively uh, discussed this concept, I was wondering, Dr. Arogami, if you could help uh, unravel this concept for our listeners that might be uh, unfamiliar or new to this term. How, what does indigeneity entail and how do you utilize this throughout your decolonizing knowledge project? Yeah, no, thank you for that uh, very uh, interesting introduction of uh, uh, the, the, the book, you know, teasing out the structure. Uh, let me say first and foremost, before I respond to the question of indigeneity, that uh, uh, I think what I try to show is that uh, extant literature, uh, existing literature on the uh, especially colonial historiography uh, can be both uh, illuminating, but it can also be obscuring. And uh, so we need to pay more attention to, to how uh, the, the complex nature, the ambivalent nature of this kind of uh, uh, literature that we we avail ourselves of. So what I try to do uh, in this book, uh, for instance, in, in, in chapter one, uh, which begins with decolonizing history, uh, memory, and method, uh, 
uh, is to pay crucial attention to the complexities, burdens of history and memory in attempting to reconstruct other historical, cultural, and religious imag imagination. So to, to make this possible, I relied on mixed methods and multiple source texts uh, in a way that privileges the voices of other people in telling their own uh, stories, histories, narratives through their own cosmological imaginaries. And, but at, at the same time, how this is shaped by the people they encounter and who live around them. So I have used uh, these multiple sources, uh, mixed methods, you, you know, reflexively, paying careful attention to the pitfalls of hagiography, you know, uh, looking uh, closely into the emic ethic dilemma, or uh, in some sense, what others might call the insider-outsider power dynamics, uh, but also uh, paid attention to memory. Memory is very crucial in this reconstruction process. So memory uh, is, is laced with the politics of remembering and forgetting. And what I try to show how uh, uh, remembering and forgetting are two uh, integral aspects of, of, uh, of uh, uh, memory making. So uh, let me now uh, try to respond to uh, the question of unmasking indigeneity, the, the way I see it. Uh, in the first instance, I think that indigeneity and indigenous, both in conceptual and theoretical terms, are hardly static. They are fluid. They are in constant flux and they are being continually contested and negotiated uh, locally. So uh, the way I used uh, indigeneity or the way I understood indigeneity and used it in this book was to explore indigeneity as a relational concept deriving from both colonial but also post-colonial milieus through the prism of other spirituality and the, uh, what I would call the ecologies of indigenous knowledge systems. So I engage uh, the discourse on other worldviews, cosmologies, and religious cultures as a way of interrogating indigeneity. So in this sense, therefore, indigeneity is lived experiences and embodied memory that is often ritualized and performed in their, in their life worlds. I argue that this is rooted in our self-identity and claims to autochthony, you know, chains of collective memory and, and narratives of existence, presences, worldviews, cosmologies, gendered identities, as well as their historical, cultural, religious, socio-economic, and political imaginaries. So uh, in this regard, therefore, Indigeneity occupies, you know, embodied, real, but also imagined space in ways that uh, valorizes the sociality of our other religious cultures in everyday life. Uh, just to, to summarize this, may I highlight some ingredients uh, of indigeneity? And uh, uh, because of time, let me just identify two. First, 
I see language as a significant marker of identity, indigeneity, and cultural identity. Language as an expression of uh, uh, other culture is core to this research. And that is why you see that all through the book, in many ways, I privilege the use of, you know, other language, you know, uh, and then put what I consider to be the English meaning in brackets, rather than have it the English translation, which is always not exact, and put, you know, the other name in brackets. So, and I, I think the colonial knowledge system should should think seriously about the prioritization of indigenous languages and terms and concepts because the English translations are hardly direct translations of of, uh, what those concepts uh, uh, mean. So as an other indigenous, I'm very conversant with other spoken and written language. And uh, I, I consider that as a cognitive capital and uh, a useful asset, uh, both in gathering data, but also in interpreting and analyzing my, my data. So I, I saw that very useful. And I think, therefore, we, we need to pay attention to language you know, as an important ingredient uh, in indigeneity discourse. The second, indigeneity, as I try to show in my book, is also rooted in conceptions and negotiations of land, ecology, and and spatial configurations. And as I argued in my book, other people link indigenous epistemologies in relation to land, autochthony, and language. For instance, ancestral land, you know, has both a material and a spiritual significance. And within this duality, we can understand their group and sociocultural identity in a way that gives them an aura of invisibility. So uh, I, I try to show in my book that the personalization of ancestral land as Eke Oza, that is Oza land, or Eke Mai, our ancestral land, endears custodianship, ownership, and autochthony. So in, in this way, it serves also as an invisibilizing uh, insignia of, of identity uh, and indigeneity. So uh, in the course of my work, therefore, my locationality and positionality in the Decolonizing Knowledges project helped me to a great extent to to plug this book within the wider historiography of uh, decolonization and indigeneity discourses. Thank you, Dr. Adugami, for clarifying that and really um, helping us to put into perspective of some of the approaches, the um, the concepts that you utilize throughout this, not only the chapter one, but throughout the whole, uh, throughout your whole book, and in helping us kind of locate where, how we should uh, understand this moving forward. And I hope that our listeners and future readers will be able to um, better understand this concept so that we can move forward together. And as we look in chapter two, we are provided with an in-depth history of the migratory Oza people especially as we are able to get a close look at some of the fascinating 
was a myth regarding their origin and migration traditions that derived from uh, their oral narratives and local histories, uh, which also highlight stories of fierce warriors and the centrality of ancestors and deities. Um, but in order to fully embrace our conversations today, and before we proceed any further, I was wondering, Dr. Aragami, if you could help us to first introduce to us and locate Oza within the more contemporary history of uh, Nigeria. This would be tremendously helpful for our listeners and future readers who are new to Nigeria. And um, in reconstructing Oza's early history, uh, please feel free to mention anything that you would like to highlight, maybe even talking more on the etymology of the name Oza, as I found that to be quite fascinating as well. Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, just to say, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Oza indigenous community is located uh, in the Midwest now, or sometimes you could say the Southwest, uh, within uh, Edo State. And uh, under Edo State, uh, within the Akko Edo local government uh, uh, area, uh, it's a, a small community, uh, but its history is very complex, especially as I've shown in the migration history and the myths uh, uh, coming from, from Benin City, uh, also some traditions linking it to Ife and so on and so forth. So what I tried to do was uh, uh, to show that the history of Oza people in a those state of Nigeria is a, a dynamic one, uh, a kind of an unfolding narrative that uh, entails a critical but uh, a reflexive reminiscing uh, into a real and imagined historical uh, past. So in this uh, uh, narrative, uh, I paid crucial attention to uh, the complexities, uh, the burdens of history and, and memory in attempting this reconstruction. So uh, oral narratives are very important. The myths are important. The colonial uh, archival documents were all important. Uh, but what is important is how to synthesize all these different uh, sources and materials, uh, which I think involves a delicate process of retooling, retracing, reinterpreting, and re retelling. So it's not a simple uh, process. But I also try to show that the history and cultures of Oza people, uh, one of the northern Edo towns, share commonalities with several towns and villages, both in northern part of Edo state, but also among Bini and other Edo-speaking people. So uh, I didn't try to essentialize uh, as if there's you know special people who fell from the sky, you know. So. Uh, what I did was to situate the historical myths of origin and migration uh, uh, and the cultural, social, organizational, and political system uh, uh, to, to demonstrate the contrasting features. How are they uh, similar you know, with those around them? But what makes them peculiar? And I think these are all uh, very important things. So it was therefore logical to attempt to construct and reconstruct other traditions of origin, uh, migration, and history within the broader historical tapestry of Benin and Edo-speaking peoples. I think in that way, it, it, it made it intelligible. Uh, at the same time, I attempted to locate Oza 
within the precincts of colonial pre and post independence Nigeria to show how these different political configurations uh, shape and reshape other boundaries, but also their political, social, and religious uh, uh, imaginaries. Uh, I then explored oral narratives, including myths of, of origin, uh, which helped me to explain uh, their historical origins, their migrations and traditions, but also most importantly, relationship with neighbors in, in historical perspective. Uh, I, I went further to, to try to understand uh, their encounter with what I've called multiple colonialisms, histories and influences, uh, and the transmission and translation of, uh, of Christianity and Islam in other society. And I think uh, uh, utilizing decolonizing uh, the theories helps me to look inwards to be able to unpack these uh, multiple uh, colonialisms. And I, I can say something about that. However, based on uh, the scanty uh, extant published material on the historical origins and, and migration of other people, uh, I relied mostly, uh, as I've mentioned, on mixed methods and, and multiple sources in, in gathering synthesizing and analyzing both primary and secondary uh, uh, data. The sources that I use, these mixed sources, uh, avail robust data, but uh, I also use the data with some caution and circumspection, you know, uh, of course, paying attention to the pitfalls that I uh, identified uh, uh, earlier. So I exercise caution in telling but also retelling the history of other people, you know. Uh, here, what was helpful for me was uh, self-reflexivity. Self-reflexivity I, I, self is quintessential so as to avoid slipping into romanticizing or essentializing other worldviews, uh, cosmologies, and, and religious cultures. Thus, uh, this raises the, the question which uh, I raised in the book of how I employ social epistemic and cultural reflexivity in navigating my in-betweenness status. Uh, again, I, I talked about how, uh, you know, 26 years of my adult life was spent, you know, uh, in Europe and America. So how do I, uh, in my dispassionate status as a scholar, uh, at the same time, my avidity in privileging a native narrative, you know, while I'm negotiating ethic, emic dynamics, and the insider-outsider enigma. So how does this help me? So in methodological terms, I position myself as an insider-outsider and an outsider-insider contemporaneously. You know, this enabled me to a large extent uh, to engage in social, cultural, and epistemic uh, reflexivity uh, in trying to make sense of the data. So, finally, uh, as an Oza indigene who has sojourned in in Europe and North America in the past twenty six years, social, cultural, and epistemic reflexivity enabled me to unlearn. 
learn and relearn. So I needed to navigate uh, uh, emic ethic positionality. At the same time, my old and new social locationality. So this entailed opening up to the cultural, religious, and social universe in order that each respective uh, phenomenon uh, opens up to me. I cannot pretend that I know everything about Oza, even though I was born and raised there. My more than three de decades outside my home place uh, shows me uh, that uh, I'm now, to, to an extent, an outsider because I don't know what has gone uh, within those three decades. So this has helped me to uncover multiple layers of hegemony as well. Uh, what I refer to using uh, uh, a term that has been popularized as the coloniality of power, as I delved into the foregrounds and backgrounds of other historical, uh, cultural, political, economic, and, and, and religious universe. So... Uh, I think uh, I would say that this methodological stand was quite very helpful to me uh, throughout the course of my uh, uh, writing and uh, analysis of my data. Well, thank you, Dr. Adogame, for that very detailed answer and in helping us to better understand um, your own positionality and locality and also how this all fits into retelling and reconstructing uh, Oza's history. And if I may put a quick follow-up question here, is that in doing a close reading of this chapter, I think it is also important to discuss the Oza people and their relations to the neighbors. I think you've mentioned just now in your answer, talking about these neighbors, but um, as you have stated in the book as well, um, you talk about these neighbors who have been relatively serene and congenial on one hand and turbulent and contentious on the other. As it is your goal um, to unmask multiple colonial hegemonies, both from outside and from within, I was wondering if you wanted to briefly talk about the impact of these multiple hegemonies, the nupunization and the urbanization of Oza, and as you mentioned, where Christianity and Islam fits in into this mix? Mm. No, thank you uh, very much for that question. Uh, let me preface that by saying that, uh, if you recall, I, I, I talked about neighbors uh, as a kind of a precarious proximity uh, uh, against the backdrop of uh, the fact that we are surrounded by neighbors who... Uh, with, with whom we have very congenial relationship, but also relationship that is problematic. And as I try to argue in the book, uh, the problematic relationship is not unconnected with these multiple hegemonies and these multiple colonialisms that we experience. So uh, I seem to be suggesting that to to understand other people and, and their relation to their neighbors today, uh, we must be able to understand how the colonialities of power, you know, contributed in making and unmaking this kind of relationship uh, that uh, uh, I try to, uh, to present in the book. So, therefore, uh, the historical and, and contemporary encounters and the relationship between other peoples, her neighbors, but also multiple colonial hegemonies 
help me to demonstrate one framework of understanding other indigenous religious and cultural imaginaries. As I uh, showed in chapter two, uh, I explored oral narratives, include, uh, including a myth of origin, uh, which helped me to explain historical origins, migration and, tra uh, and traditions, but also relationships with neighbors in, in historical perspective. They also helped me to explain the encounter with these uh, multiple colonialisms, so to speak, or multiple uh, hegemonies, their histories and, and influences, uh, but also the transmission and translation of Christianity and Islam uh, in other society. And I think this, this leads me to the whole idea of uh, the nopenization and the urbanization. Uh, so I, I went a step further to delineate and name colonization and hegemony from inside, uh, sorry, from outside, which is the European imperialism, particularly the British in this sense. But I took a step further to look at colonization and hegemony from within. And in this way, it, it points to the Nupe, the Yoruba and Bini hegemonies. And these internal hegemonies, or if you like, these internal colonialisms uh, impacted on other society differently. Just like the, the British, uh, you know, colonialism. So uh, and you can see this uh, in many ways uh, at the intercession of race, power, ethnicity, economic, political, religious, social, and, and gender identities. So what I tried to do in, in, in the book was to show, uh, given uh, certain instances and ways uh, in which each of these hegemonies, both the external hegemony, which is the British, and the internal one, which is the Nupe, the Yoruba, and the Benin, you know, as impacting both singly but also uh, uh, collectively uh, to, to shape other social, political, and religious uh, uh, imagination. So I critically explored, for instance, the, the resilience, uh, the change and transformation of other indigenous religions and cultures against the backlash of a counter with this, what I consider colonial modernities. And colonial modernities or hegemonies in this sense is the British, the Nupe, the Yoruba, and the Benin hegemonic incursions and influences at different uh, uh, historical uh, periods. But, but also the contestations with exogenous uh, religious cultures, such as Christianity and Islam, because Christianity came with the British colonialism. Islam came with the Nupe colonialism. Uh, Christianity... And Islam also came with the Yoruba, you know, uh, uh, hegemony. And I try to show how these were increasingly engaged in, in religious competition within a contemporary uh, other society. So, so therefore, I argue that any theorizations of this kind of encounter between the coloniality of power, between these hegemonic intrusions, and indigenous or their political and religious uh, cultures must take due cognizance of 
instantiations of indigeneity politics and the dynamics of identity, culture, tradition, and power. And, and in, in, in one of, I, I think uh, towards the end, my last chapter, I gave a few examples to tease this out. Uh, I used uh, four main paradigms to demonstrate the, the interconnectedness uh, of this. Uh, for instance, I talked about the competing power encounters, uh, the multiple loyalties and paradigms of justice, how, how the justice and the judicial system, you know, uh, uh, interacted and uh, provided a backlash, which actually contributed to the the problem, uh, some of the problems we have today, like the kinship problem, you know. Uh, I talked about uh, how uh, uh, there was a negotiation process between nopenization, urbanization, Christianization, and colonial uh, modernity. Uh, and there are several examples we can see even in the way people, the names that people take, you know. So you have uh, a preponderance of names, names that are Nupe and Islam uh, uh, located. Uh, we also have in my community a lot of European names. At the same time, we have a lot of Christians, Christian names. So the, 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 if you don't understand the root, where this name comes from, you are likely going to think that these are our names. So uh, this helps me to show what I later call the nupenization uh, and the urbanization of, of other community. The third way I tried to tease this out was in the ways in which uh, rituals were reconfigured. And I, I, I showed the example of naming rituals, for instance, how the importance and the symbolism of na naming within other society was transmitted into Christianity and Islam, where some of those rituals, local indigenous rituals, were refined and continued in the church, you know, to retain their salience and symbolism and importance. Another example is the marriage rituals. Uh, there are elaborate rituals connected to marriage and uh, to attract people into Christianity, some of those marriage rituals were adapted and, and repackaged in a way that some were brought into the church and Christianized, so to speak. So I think that is another way in which we could see uh, the interplay of, of mission Christianity, colonial education, and indigenous knowledge uh, production. So I, I use those as examples just to to illustrate uh, the complexity of, of this encounter between Oza and this, what I call, uh, uh, colonial hegemonies or the colonialities of, of power. And we will again return to some of those examples later on, as you have discussed at the later questions. But um, we would also like to um, spend a little more time in the, ne in the next chapter, in chapter three, in which you titled uh, Worldviews, Religious Cosmologies, and Spiritual Agency. Um, here we enter into the Ogbe, the world of the Oza people. I, For me, I particularly enjoyed this chapter as it not only delineates the uniqueness of the Oza religious cosmology, but also gives the reader a better understanding of how African cosmologies are constructed, how social structures and 
cultural traditions cannot be separated with spirituality. And if I may borrow your own words, Dr. Arogame, um, the indigenous cultures are indeed, quote, a complex web of religion, attitudes and behavior, morality, politics and economy in which their thought systems influence their cognitive processes and lifestyles, end quote. There's a lot to cover in this chapter, Dr. Arogame, but what I thought was in a way the crux of this chapter was the dynamic between the humans and the spiritual entities, especially through the rituals and sacrifices which expresses the, and sustains their relationship. As you have delineated in this chapter, the belief in the spiritual entities, a supreme deity, and the multiplicity of divinities, spirits, and ancestors, they're all paramount uh, for the Oza people. And this is really well portrayed through the notion of divination. Um, it is here I would like to ask you, uh, Dr. Aragame, what is the significance of divination? Um, what does it seek to accomplish? And who are the central agents uh, in this activity? No, thank you, uh, Bion. Uh, I can I can speak until tomorrow about this, but <laughs> let, let me try to be brief here. Yeah, I think uh, in the first instance, uh, we have to be careful how we import Western paradigms, you know, to to un, to interpret such local contexts. And uh, I think uh, what I try to do and to show here, of course, uh, is not novel, but it contributes to that ongoing discussion, especially where the subtle compartmentalization of, of sacred and mundane domains uh, uh, is uh, one external import into indigenous worldviews. And this deserves a deconstruction. And uh, I think uh, in other, uh, within other uh, uh, social understanding, within their cosmology, there's not a strict watertight, you know, uh, dichotomy between uh, sacred and, and mundane uh, 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 domains. Rather, there's a fluidity, you know, and I think we, we have to recognize that so, so just as the dichotomy between sacred and secular is sometimes blurring, uh, I would argue, and, and my data actually showed very clearly that it is problematic to pigeonhole indigenous epistemologies. So I, I try to show that uh, uh, in other religious imagine, Im imagination, uh, it embraces beliefs, practices, technologies, values, ways of knowing and sharing in terms of which communities have, have survived. Additionally, uh, this is informed by and relates to all domains of life and the environment, including the creative and artistic aspects of music, dance, and, and oral tradition. So you could see that uh, in, in several chapters, I try to pay attention to the creative and artistic aspects of, of music or dance, because all these are integral to telling that story. It, it also includes philosophy, ethics, and worldview, concepts of life, death, cosmos, environment, spiritual world, spirituality, 
divination, transfer of religious knowledge, rites of passage, a theology of sickness and disease, but also indigenous healing systems. So you, you can see that uh, this embraces, you know, a whole gamut of, of, of things. Therefore, I try to demonstrate in this book how other worldviews, cosmologies, and, and uh, ritual praxis, but also new ways of knowing, which is where divination comes, makes sense as a continuum in the contestation of, of uh, uh, indigeneity. So, as I've tried to show in this book, as the understanding of the, of, of the cosmos and its complexities is important in order to appreciate their religious worldviews, thought patterns, and, 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 uh, and praxis. So, so in describing, therefore, as the religious life ways, how the people live and act within these frameworks, it was important for me to show how such words consist of spiritual agencies, special powers, beings within with which special human actors form prescribed uh, uh, relationship. And what I demonstrated, uh, I think, in maybe chapter four or five, uh, uh, as a dominant element in, in other religious epistemology, uh, is the belief in spiritual entities and underlying uh, life forces, which includes a, a supreme deity, the multiplicity of divinity, spirits, and ancestors, but also rituals or practices uh, uh, con consigning them. And then I went on in chapter three to explore how ritual spaces, rules, powers, and actions are expressions of a coherent system of thought uh, that informs the religious life ways of other people who participate in them. So it is against this backdrop that one can see the centrality of indigenous healers, diviners, and other functionaries. Uh, uh, and, and I try to show, describe them as a spiritual reservoirs of, of, of the indigenous system. And uh, just to be more direct to the question of divination and, and myths that you, you, you mentioned, uh, I think I tried to demonstrate that myths and rituals uh, operate within a sacred space and time and they occupy uh, a conspicuous place uh, in other re religious uh, life. Uh, divination is important, especially in connection to rites of passage uh, involving birth, puberty, marriage, uh, death. Uh, and uh, I demonstrated in the book how uh, those myths often enacted in rites of passage, you know, festivals, and ceremonial activities link the creative power of the deities, divinities, and ancestors with the needs of the people. But, but also how notions of time and ritual circles are embedded in other, other uh, religious uh, uh, cosmos. So I describe, for instance, just to end, the Osokuru, the Okutu, and uh, uh, also transitional rituals of incorporation which are exclusive for young boys and men, just as I, I focus on more elaborate, uh, exclusive rituals for the transition of young girls into women. Uh, for instance, the Ukwe Iruvie, Omonugere, and uh, Ibishika as, as a case example. 
So in that way, uh, I connected, you know, uh, divination, myths, and rituals. So the best way, or one of the best ways to understand such festivals or rituals is through their connection to myths, but also through divinatory practices that prescribe, you know, uh, uh, you know, ritual attitudes and, and, and methods. So uh, this is what I try to do uh, in, in ch chapter uh, three and four. Yes, yes. Thank you, Dr. Adegome, for that uh, very detailed answer. And as you mentioned, in the following chapter, uh, we, in a way, um, we are still on going the same path, but we slightly shift gears as we explore the Ozat kinship system. Um, here, it's very fascinating as, you know, the there is uh, Ozat people put a very um, emphasis of kinship lineage groupings. Um, now, coming from an Asian background as myself, where it is more predominantly patrilineal, it was intriguing to learn how the Oza kinship system is constructed as a bilateral lineage structure, uh, meaning that it emphasizes both patrilineal and the matrilineal pedigree. Um, yet you argue in this chapter that the maternal lineage known as the Ireme is more significant than the patrilineal within the Oza social, cultural, and political life, especially as women I think as you emphasize so much uh, since the beginning of our interview, as women play a central role in the Oza religious cosmology and uh, within the people themselves. Uh, so Dr. Arogami, could you expound more on the Oza uh, kinship system and the significance of the Ireme? And please do feel free to talk uh, more on the impact of women in Oza and where where does the Ireme pottery? Um, I think uh, I think that was the the cover that shows um, within the cover. But um, how the Ireme pottery making fit into all this? No, thank you again, uh, Bian. Yes, I, I think there is a certain uh, public ignorance, uh, particularly in larger academic discourse, discourse that seem to suggest that uh, African societies are exclusively you know, Petraka and Patrilinea and uh, uh, women have no role and place. And I think that is a very mistaken, you know, uh, uh, generalization. Uh, so uh, what I try to do uh, in, in, in this chapter uh, that delineates a kinship uh, system uh, is to critique that assumption and to show that African societies uh, are both Petraka and Metraka. They are both Matriloka and Patriloka. Uh, they are both Matrilinear and Patrilinear. And to put all of them in a, in a box uh, uh, is, is very reductionistic. So I, I argue that while African societies uh, uh, are often lumped together, and their social organizations uh, generally described as uh, patrilinear or patriloca, it's important to underscore that their kinship structures are rather more complex and dynamic. And I think this is what jumped at me when I looked at Oza uh, society, because uh, kinship lineage uh, groupings uh, play an important role in indigenous governance systems 
while the extended family structure is quintessential. And I think the extended family system, uh, particularly what I saw uh, within uh, the uh, indigenous system, is very interesting where I try to show how there are two tracks, you know, <laughs> the, the matana and the patana. Uh, uh, but also, uh, I try to demonstrate in the book uh, how the myth of sacred kinship institution is very central in our cosmological uh, tradition. For instance, uh, in chapter four, uh, I explored our kinship system as a bilateral lineage structure, uh, where I, I demonstrated how and to what extent Ireme as maternal lineage, you know, as opposed to Afe, which is the uh, paternal lineage, you know, uh, uh, becomes very important. And uh, within us, the matrilinear, patrilinear pedigree, uh, uh, this is centrally important to uh, our socio-cultural and political life. And what I discover very interestingly is the prominence of the female gender within kinship genealogy. And this is analogous to the especially ritual role and place of women uh, within the religious map of the cosmos. So let, let me just give you uh, uh, three or four indices to show uh, the centrality of the matrilinear uh, lineage, for instance, or rather to, to, to expand it, to look at the, the central role and place of women. If you look at the constitution of deities, and divinities, as I try to show, uh, there are numerous uh, 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 divinities in other cosmological tradition. But it's striking to know that females dominate. There are more female divinities. In actual fact, the most important divinities in other, you know, cosmological tradition are female. So how do we how do we unpack this? Second is in terms of kinship and blood relations and intermarriages and inheritance. Uh, you could not intermarry within your Ireme, but you could do that in your Afe, which is the paternal uh, uh, lineage. In, in actual fact, in the acquisition of wealth and, and inheritance, uh, people believe that all you have all you have acquired, whether material or otherwise, uh, belongs to your maternal family, not your paternal family. So uh, to put it colloquially, you, you don't mess up with your maternal lineage. It's so sacrosanct. Thirdly, we could look at the routinization of, of uh, rituals. You, you see that a lot of the family, uh, the festivals and ceremonies that I describe, those associated with women dominate and are more visible. That is why I spend time to unpack them, uh, perhaps in chapter six uh, and uh, maybe also chapter seven, because these are the, the elaborate festival that are either annual festivals but also festivals that are associated with rites of passage, like marriage and all that. So 
there's a tendency, there's the visibility of rituals associated with the female gender that uh, that are more pro- uh, prevalent. And that is not unconnected with the cosmology because rituals, uh, uh, festivals uh, are connected to myths. They are also connected to deities, especially in the place where you know you have more female deities. So that is another connection. Finally, I think we can think about uh, uh, female uh, political and economic power. And bringing up, for instance, the question of the area the pottery making uh, is indicative of uh, the economic power. Uh, but, but you see the political power, uh, although women don't become king, but they are powerful, you know, uh, 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 king makers. And we, we could see, I gave an example how uh, during the colonial modernity, uh, when uh, they were sub- the village was subjected to payment of of, uh, of uh, taxes, and uh, the whim- the the men, you know, seem to be you know a bit more docile and uh, receptive to to those uh, uh, kind of power struggles. But the women stood their ground and said, "No, we are not paying tax, you know, because we don't see what the benefit of paying tax, you know." So, but, but those narratives, uh, and this is where archival silences are important. You would not find narratives of female political power in the archival documents because they were seen as subversive to, to, to the colonial coloniality of power. So it takes oral narratives to be able to unpack, and I and I think this is where uh, the colonial methodologies become important to 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 pay attention to archival silences, because you will never find those details. But archival uh, silences are important because they complement and actually critique the kind of stories that have been documented. So I use these four indices of uh, the constitution of of uh, deities. Uh, kinship, marriage, and inheritance, routinization of rituals, but also uh, political and economic power to to show that we need a rethink how we imagine, you know, uh, the female gender within indigenous societies. I think they are often silenced, and the colonial uh, knowledge systems uh, makes us to begin to pay more attention, both into their role. And, and, and importance, not only in indigenous societies, but also today. And if we, if we look at what Christianity today and, and ask the question, who dominates you know, the, the churches? You know, it's women. But also the dynamics of power, you know, how does it play out within modern day uh, Christianity? Anyway, that is a different topic entirely, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Adegui, for that thorough answer. And really, I really truly enjoyed this chapter and better understanding this whole understanding of kinship. And I think it's also imperative. It was a very great segue into the following chapter in which we discussed the matters of kingship now. 
um, chapters four and, and you know now in the new chapter that we discussed, chapter five also enlightens the reader with how kingship institution was also and is such an intrinsic part of Oza indigenous social political organization as it continues you know to be relevant in Oza and among other African societies even in the face of as you put it modernizing tendencies and globalizing trends. So Dr. Arugame, you describe kingship as, quote, a dynamic institution that embodies religious, social, cultural, political, and economic fabrics into an integral whole, and that the sacredity of the myths of origin and the rituals of the sacred associated with kingship imbues the institution with inviolability to contemporary African societies such as Oza indigenous peoples, end quote. And we see how kingship institution is put to the test by the British uh, coloniality and impingement. Um, do you mind, uh, Dr. Adagame, elaborating on the impact of the British colonial power um, and the impact they had on the Oza indigenous polity? Um, what were some of the repercussions due to their involvement and this into this whole kingship uh, institution? No, thank you, Bion. Uh Yes, I, I think I spent uh, a bit of time uh, chatting both the kingship, but also the kingship, you know, structures. Uh, and I think uh, one immediate uh, repercussion uh, is the uh, the prolonged uh, uh, legal tozu that uh, uh, up till today, although it's it's uh, out of the courts but it has reconfigured the society differently. So I try to show, uh, for instance, I, I focus on how uh, as an indigenous polity negotiated the, the colonial matrix of, of uh, uh, British powers as a complex exercise uh, that display hegemony against the backdrop of inherent uh, vulnerabilities of indigenous political social cultural and uh, religious system. I also uh, elaborated in one of the chapters, uh, the coloniality of power and labor, you know, how it also makes sense against the backdrop of uh, uh, contestation, negotiation, and uh, resilience. So uh, the specific example, uh, and I will just go to that, that I used, uh, the subjugation by the British colonial machinery, I try to show that uh, this was hardly devoid of uh, socio-political unease and wanton mayhem, you know. So for more than three decades, there has been a continuous, you know, court case about uh, succession to, to to leadership, you know. So this has been a period characterized by what I call a dogged resistance and reluctant recapitulation. And I showed how uh, even... Uh, uh, one of the uh, the uh, kings, uh, you know, was put in prison uh, for refusing to pay uh, to pay tax, you know, and, and this was seen as a loyalty, a disloyalty. But but also uh, the mere fact of putting him into jail, you know, raised all kinds of suspicion, you know, suspicion that characterized the continuous animosity between the ruling families. Because uh, uh, this is rotated between uh, two families, 
and how the incursion of the British hegemonies uh, complicated that rotational system, bringing in a third family. Uh, uh, so I, I try to show that in the end, the coloniality of power, uh, its duplicity, uh, consciously impinged on the indigenous justice system in a way that it eroded its power, uh, authenticity, and legitimacy. But So in that way, I, I think it truncated the judicial uh, process in some sense. However, uh, it didn't, you know, make nonsense of, of it completely. There was a resistance. So I, I seem to argue that the encounter between the empire and the local power uh, trajectories espoused the intricate politics of indigeneity, uh, but it also induced uh, uh, multi-hegemonies and lo loyalties in a way that demonstrates the upside and downside of that experience. You know, uh, in, in one of the chapters, I was talking about how, of course, the British um, colonial apparatus wanted to blow blow up the shrine you know which which uh, on whose uh, the, the king's power is anchored but they were also careful they had the intelligence report that look if you think that you blow up that shrine and uh, that would uh, uh, put everything to rest it will uh, in fact invoke more trouble so the way they, they navigated that was one they recognized that there was uh, uh, indigenous power structure. But they also recognize that this is tied to some kind of spirituality. And you cannot just tamper with that. You know, so uh, th this is what I try to show how the what I call the hierarchization of power became most consequential in facilitating multiple hegemonies and competing loyalties. Either to the British, or to the Nupe uh, leadership, or to the Yoruba leadership, and it played out in in different uh, in different ways as I uh, I try to show. So I I hope I responded to that sufficiently. No, you did. And again, if I may um, add here, you dedicate that whole another whole chapter on you know um, trying to delineate the messiness of what you know as you mentioned the repercussions of that and it's just yes that, that yeah. may be uh, boring for researchers and scholars but i, I think that uh, unpacking that history the history of the legal crisis is very important for other people because it, it has polarized the community uh, up till tomorrow so what I tried to do uh, was to think about multiple audiences. On the one hand, there are certain parts of the book that are useful to scholars of religion and anthropologists and all that, but there are parts of it that may be boring. At the same time, uh, the other people would be interested in the mapping of those histories because it helps to put the histories straight such aspects may be boring for scholars. So uh, the question was how to negotiate and uh, package a book that would appeal to multiple audiences, both scholars, but also the indigenous people at the same time. 
Thank you, Dr. Adogame. And I remember specifically how you draw from even court documents in delineating that. And I think you have that in mind of not only addressing the, the curiosity of scholars, of, of anthropologists and so forth, but also in addressing, you know, uh, delineating the correct facts uh, and in talking about this. So I really appreciated um, how you've uh, digged into, uh, in a way, those legal documents to in telling this story. So yeah, thank um, you. Good. I'm happy it made sense to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, I can assure you that when this book gets into the hands of many other people, the first chapter they are going to read is the chapter on the legal history. Yes, because that's what concerns a number of them, uh, especially as the society uh, continues to be polarized uh, in many ways. Yes. Now, in looking at the final chapters of your book, I noticed that these chapters extensively deal with um, rituals that are central uh, within Oza indigenous worldview. Um, and you've mentioned, uh, you've talked about some of them, and these rituals of passage not only enhance the relationship between the people and the powers of deities, divinities, and ancestors, but also provide ways of implementing the values, norms, and beliefs of the Oza society. So here, um, Dr. Aragame, you go to great lengths to explain the rites of passage, um, and you repeatedly mentioned, you know, which involves birth, puberty, marriage, and death, you know, and all which can be considered as the core of the Oza cosmology. I know if we talk about all of them, we will need another new separate <laughs> podcast episode. Yes. Uh, and since there won't be enough time to, to discuss all of them in detail, I was wondering if you could just focus our attention on the rituals of childbirth. Um, the other aspects, I'm sure our listeners can get a copy of your book and read thoroughly, but um, in putting our attention to the rituals of childbirth, particularly um, as you, you also briefly mentioned on the naming ritual, uh, what does this naming rite entail and why is it an essential aspect of Oza social structure? Um, and in thinking about the future of Oza indigeneity in, in the face of uh, modernity, and especially with the impact of Christianity in Africa, how has this naming rite, you know, naming ritual evolved over time? Yeah. No, thank you, Bion. Uh, I, I think uh, what I tried to do in this chapter <clears throat> and the one that followed was to uh, emphasize the place of rituals as against beliefs. I try to show that uh, the indigenous uh, religions place more emphasis on the experiential dimension rather than you know focusing on 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 beliefs and all. In in actual fact, beliefs don't make sense except in terms of the ritual. And one way to understand rituals is to go back to the myths and beliefs from which uh, they come. So I try to show that. Uh, uh, myths and rituals operate within a uh, 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 sacred space and time, and they occupy uh, a conspicuous place in other religious uh, uh, life. Uh, and I think here I drew a lot from uh, uh, cosmologies, you know, and, and ritual enactments uh, to the supersensible entities and how they dominate everyday uh, lives in ensuring. Uh, Iregume is good health, good life, and human flourishing. And I try to show that uh, as the religious cosmos uh, covers the entire Ogwe, Ogwe is life, 
from the cradle to the to the grave. So in this connection, therefore, ritual action is very central to the lives of other people in enhancing the relationships to the powers of Ogwe, which is life, and uh, uh, of Megbe or Egbeka, which is peace, as a necessary state for uh, the community. You know, so I, I, I'm saying that you may not understand one or two rituals in isolation. They, they are integrated in, uh, uh, to, to make a kind of a holistic sense. But, but at the same time, this involves actors, action, use of time and space, but also symbolic uh, uh, agencies. So it, it is against this backdrop I try to show that rites and ceremonies uh, characterize each stage of existence and, and uh, as circumstances uh, 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 require. So I focus, therefore, uh, by examining some rituals of, uh, of a passage, you know, uh, festival, seasonal changes, individual uh, achievements, and in many cases, especially women. So, and this leads to the question of uh, uh, pre parturition and child bite uh, ritual, which uh, constitutes uh, significant, uh, significant aspects of, uh, of a life cycle events in indigenous society. Uh, and uh, as I suggested, virtually all aspects and stages in, in everyday life are dotted with rituals to ancestors, divinities, or the supreme being, even before a child is born. So perhaps the, the most uh, ritual-inspiring events, as I argue, are the birth, marriage, and death. You know? So other people, uh, in, just to give a framework, and then I, I would uh, say at the end the importance of the naming uh, ritual. Uh, other people incorporate rituals and ceremony as an integral part of the pregnancy and birth experience. So procreation is very central and constitutes one of the ingredients of irregulment, which I talked about, and a prerequisite for attaining the status of an ancestor. So that is why the process of pregnancy and all that is jealously guided, you know, right from before a child is born up to when it's born. So thus, having an offspring or children is an important outcome of marriage to the extent that they enact special rights during marriage ceremony to, to ensure a consummated marriage. In this indigenous society, uh, there's no chance for, oh, well, we are career people and so we will just get married and uh, well, we don't want to have children. It's cheaper to, to, to have a, a dog or a cat, you know, as part of family, no chance. And, and that explains the importance of a, a, a consummated marriage. Other people believe that such ritual performances have potential on women's fertility, protect the paturiency and secure a safe delivery. So rituals and ceremony therefore form an integral part of pregnancy and birth. Now, to the naming ritual itself, which we call Ireniomo Inami, or Omo Ipami Fyokofadi, which is the outdooring. Uh, these two rituals have been catapulted into Christianity now, where you have similar rituals. 
but they form an essential part of a ritual a social structure. And, and so one conspicuous uh, transitional rite that lubricate passage through life is the naming ritual. A name represents an essential component of human spiritual anatomy and serves as an indicator of destiny. Two, names are not given for the sake of naming. Names carry history. They carry symbolism. So every name that any name that has no meaning is not an other name. So it's a way of saying, tell me your name and I can guess the history and the symbolism or also the connection to deities or to ancestors or to, or to uh, spiritual uh, entities. So the power of naming is such that an individual does not exist without a name. Every name is imbued with meaning, history, and symbolism. And finally, a name becomes a religious mark of identification and a sign of honor and respect. So it goes with the saying, uh, tell me your name and I will tell you who you are. So there's no looking for a dictionary of names to pick a name. Names are attached to meaning, history, and symbolism. That is why naming rituals are very, very important. Thank you, Dr. Adobame, um, for that um, detailed answer. And um, outside of just the naming uh, ritual, um, you cover, again, in great detail about puberty rights, about marriage, and even death. So for our listeners and future readers, I hope that you do go through these uh, this chapter and learning more about uh, these rituals and what they truly entail. As we head towards the end of your book, Dr. Aragame, I would like to take a moment to express my appreciation for your work as I learned so much um, through the Oza historical, cosmological, and ritual imaginaries, how indigenous religions are pivotal in understanding both the African past and the future. Um, even through the layers of complexity, uh, the clarity in your explanations provided in each chapter has been very helpful. And it is here, uh, Dr. Adogame, I would like to ask you, um, in thinking about our future readers, what do you hope scholars and students working in, let's say, uh, religious studies or African studies, anthropology, and even world Christianity uh, will take from your book? And what new doors for research would you say your book opens up to? No, thank you, Bion. I think it's been a, a pleasant experience uh, exploring with you uh, the different contours in this, uh, in this book. Uh, so to be brief, uh, I think there are many things I would want uh, scholars working in African studies, anthropology, religion, and world Christianity uh, might uh, think with or take home uh, uh, as far as my research and output is concerned. Uh, I think the first thing I will say is that context matters. But how we study context also matters. And I think that raises an important question about uh, methodology. Two, I think looking at indigenous contexts, just like the other uh, indigenous society that uh, formed the context of my book, uh, we need more and more, whether uh, 
in what Christianity, whether we are dealing with uh, African Christianity or we are dealing with indigenous religions, uh, I think it is important to uh, interrogate decolonizing uh, knowledges and decolonizing theories because uh, I, I think using those methodologies opened my eyes, you know, uh, a bit more critically, especially uh, as it helped me to engage in sociocultural and epistemic reflexivity. If I didn't do that, I might probably have been unable to think about multiple hegemonies. Because sometimes when we talk about uh, decolonizing or colonization discourses, we often think that hegemonies, we can only talk about you know, Western hegemonies. We never think about internal hegemonies uh, like the nopinization and the urbanization I, I discussed. So I, I think this helped me to put a balance to see that uh, uh, there's the tendency we can explore hegemonies within and hegemonies without. And each of these helps us in, in, in the decolonization uh, project. So uh, I, I would encourage uh, researchers and scholars to, to pay more attention uh, and uh, pay crucial attention to their own social, cultural, and, and uh, uh, epistemic locations because our locationality and our, our positionalities are very important in the kind of researches we do. Thank you, Dr. Adewame, um, for your wonderful discussion and answers and for your time uh, in the midst of your busy schedule to discuss uh, your book as we took a very deep dive into the world of the Oza people. Um, as we end today's interview, there is one final question that I always like to ask my guests, and that is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on so that our our listeners and future readers can follow up on your work as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Beyond. Yes. Well, I think uh, we are uh, at a time where you don't put your eggs in one basket. So uh, I, I can tell you that... Uh, even while finishing this book, uh, I had been engaged in uh, multiple projects uh, that are still ongoing. Uh, uh, let me just give you an example of two. Uh, the first one, uh, uh, I'm chairing a project uh, uh, sponsored by the Tempenton uh, Religion Trust, uh, a project we've called Engaging African Realities. Uh, where we are trying to uh, integrate social science uh, methodologies into African theology. And uh, we got a generous grant uh, of uh, $2.4 million uh, from uh, Tempington uh, Religion Trust. And uh, uh, this is a project meant uh, to mentor uh, African scholars, you know, bringing together both social scientists and theologians to have a conversation. So... Uh, we have 12 projects that are located in, uh, in uh, uh, eight African countries. And these projects are very interdisciplinary. You know, uh, have theologians, scholars of religion, uh, philosophers, uh, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, uh, literary scholars. You know, uh, this is similar to the experiment I mentioned at the beginning in Bayreuth, 
you know so it's an attempt to 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 uh, promote interdisciplinarity and uh, through a mentoring process so that is one project that I've uh, I'm engaged in uh, and I serve as the project chair and uh, the co-director so it's a three uh, year project uh, so that is ongoing uh, the second project uh, fortunately is another templating John templating funded project where we receive 1.9 million uh, and this is a project on mega churches uh, modernization uh, uh, focusing on the global south where we are uh, looking at uh, 18 churches uh, in in selected uh, global south uh, countries nine countries uh, which includes uh, beyond your country as well south korea um, indonesia uh, 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 Brazil, India, uh, uh, Costa Rica, and then uh, three countries in Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. And uh, here we are exploring, uh, looking at uh, uh, mega churches and uh, what makes them so popular, what kind of theologies do they, do they bring? And uh, at the same time, how do they impact on their immediate uh, uh, environments. So uh, for this project, uh, uh, I'm leading the uh, African uh, dimension that involves uh, Kenya, Nigeria, and, and Ghana. And uh, this is a, it's an exciting project. Uh, so uh, you can see that my hands are full. I have just told you about two. Uh, and uh, I do have other uh, smaller projects uh, uh, I'm engaged with uh, at this moment. Well, Dr. Aragome, thank you for sharing those exciting and great projects. And I also look forward to reading more of your works uh, in the near future as well. And once again, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Dr. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it has been very exciting and uh, very uh, interesting conversation. Uh, thanks for actually taking out time to, to read my book. And I hope that... Uh, uh, many more colleagues and students and researchers would uh, make out time to explore uh, and enjoy uh, what I enjoyed writing. So thank you again uh, and uh, all the best. Thank you. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Afiadogame's new book, Indigeneity in African Religions, Oza Worldviews, Cosmologies and Religious Cultures, published by Bloomsbury Publishing in 2021. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode of the New Books on Religion.